to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And in our episode today, we're going to be speaking with Angelo Rossetti. Angelo is well known in the tennis and coaching communities as someone who's very positive, very generous, and a wonderful influence on his students. This conversation is pretty wide ranging, but if I were to highlight a theme, I would say it is the power of purpose and heart. So for those of you who do not know Angelo, he currently serves as the director of racket sports for the Inspire Tennis Academy and the Tennis and Fitness Center of Rocky Hill. He is a USPTA P1 elite professional. He's PTR certified, a USTA high performance and mental skills certified coach. And he's also a IPTPA certified pickleball teaching professional. As you'll hear about in our conversation, Angelo is also a two-time Guinness World Records title holder of two different tennis records, the longest tennis rally and the longest tennis volley rally. Lastly, Angelo is a published author. His book, Tenacity, so that's tenacity with two N's, The Tenacious Mindset on and off the court, is based on his mental skills blog for tennis players and athletes. He also has an online mental skills course with the same name, which can be found at tenacity.org. We hope you enjoy this very interesting conversation with Angelo Rossetti. Angelo Rossetti, welcome to the Tennis IQ Podcast. It's great to have you here today. Yeah, I'm really excited to be here, uh, Josh and Brian. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and I know when I brought up the idea of having you on with Josh, he was excited, you know, for a, a few different reasons. You know, um, we've all sort of crossed paths in different ways and um, you know, some of the things that we want to hear about from you today are, you know, the, the two Guinness Book of World Records that you and your brother have set. Want to hear about your coaching philosophy and, and also some of the mental lessons that you have learned as a coach and a player over the years and maybe some of the things that you wish you knew earlier in your life. I think we all yeah. have those, those types of things. Yeah. But to kick us off, could you give us, you know, sort of a brief history of, you know, who you are, how you got into tennis, and really how you got into coaching and what you're doing today. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I was late to the game, and I, I, I took it seriously uh, at age 15. I uh, started when I was uh, three years old playing table tennis in my grandfather's basement with my identical twin brother, Ed Ture. It was uh, a great uh, thing to do after church on Sundays. And uh, it was very memorable. We were really competitive and, you know, we started to get better and better. And so I ended up playing a lot of sports, my brother, uh, you know, experimenting with a lot of team sports and individual sports. But the anything to do with a racket seemed to be something that I gravitated to. I don't know why. Um, and my parents play tennis. I thought that my my dad was like Jimmy Connors and my mom was like Chrissy Everett until I knew better later in life. But hey, sometimes ignorance is bliss. And, and we would be on the swing sets watching them play. And then they watched tennis uh, quite a bit on TV. Uh, my mom was a big Borg fan. And so I remember the epic Borg McEnroe uh, Wimbledon match. That was probably my earliest um, tennis TV memory. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I was a big Agassi fan and, uh, you know, grew up watching him. And of course, uh, Lendl and McEnroe, but, but Agassi, I think in watching his strokes, my, my strokes, uh, I tried to mimic him, I guess, and more like cybernetics. And so I, I learned from, from watching other people play. Um, but I didn't really play, uh, myself until I was 15 when our, our best friend, uh, Rob 
you know, he was number one in New England and, and a lot of the age groups. And we used to go watch his matches uh, thinking that you had to be that good to play tennis. But he encouraged us to play, uh, as did our uh, another tennis mentor of ours, uh, Scott Wilson, uh, which we, we, we set uh, two world records, like you alluded to earlier, um, to honor his legacy and raise money for charity. Uh, and, and I then got into coaching. Uh, 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 Mike Quicko, the former uh, Quinnipiac uh, University tennis coach, uh, encouraged my brother and I and Rob to all be uh, certified by USPTA. So I became uh, certified a little bit over 30 years ago. Uh, I can't believe it's been over 30 years. And, um, you know, uh, but I but uh, I have my mom as an English teacher. My wife's a teacher. Uh, being a teacher kind of runs in the family. And I think coaching sports and teaching are similar. You want to build, you know, people of good character, great athletes, and then great tennis players in that order. And that's the philosophy I share today, being the director of racket sports at uh, the Rocky Hill Tennis and Fitness Center. Uh, previously, I worked for Von Lendl uh, for 10 years at the Weston Racket Club, uh, being its uh, director. And prior to that, uh, at Milford Indoor and uh, some other clubs like North Haven. So, uh, uh, yeah, I, 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 I've uh, taught a lot. I've, I've played, you know, uh, singles and doubles. Uh, my brother and I became number one in New England men's open doubles. Um, uh, and Todd Nicholson, the late Todd Nicholson, uh, you know, really encouraged us to uh, play a lot of the doubles tournaments. And I remember when we were over 35 years old and he had said we were trying for the number one ranking in the open and uh, the closest we got, I think, was number two. Uh, and then he said two or three, and he said, well, why don't you do age group like 35 and over and go for number one in that? And that was just the motivation I needed to stick with, you know, the being trying to be number one in men's open. And, and that did happen. Um, but I think, um, overall, I, I really believe, uh, that my purpose is to inspire others to be the best they can be on and off the court. And I try to do that every day. Yeah, there's some cool things in there. Um, the teacher-coach thing, it reminds me of John Wooden, who often called himself a, a teacher even though he was a, a coach. And even what you just said there at the end about helping people become the best that they can be, I mean, that really ties into Wooden's definition of success, right? The the idea of peace of mind, that you've done everything you could to become the best you could become. And it sounds to me, Angelo, like that's you're like somebody's partner, on their journey toward that definition of success. Yeah, that's a great analogy. I've always loved doubles. So, so you know, if it's not with my identical twin, then uh, maybe it's with the person who I'm coaching. There you go. It is a collaboration, <laughs> is it not? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you touched a little bit about, um, about the Guinness uh, World Records um, and some of the, the motivation behind, behind that. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about um, how that idea started um, in terms of setting that record and uh, and what 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 you really set out to do? Yeah, so uh, Scott Wilson was uh, certainly a mentor of ours. Uh, he was the head pro uh, at North Haven Health and Racket, and I was um, an assistant pro there. And um, and then uh, at age uh, uh, forty one, he was diagnosed with. ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. Um, he was a big fly fisherman and he was feeling numbness in his, uh, 
in his uh, toes. And so they originally misdiagnosed it as Lyme's disease, but um, then it, it wasn't, he wasn't quite right. And he had to kind of stop playing tournaments and things like that. Uh, he was a phenomenal player and, and coach. He had an endless amount of energy uh, and so firm, but fair and um, had such a, a wonderful following. And he encouraged my brother and I to, to play just like Todd Nicholson did to play doubles tournaments uh, in New England. And unfortunately at age 42, only a year after his diagnosis, he unfortunately left us. Um, so my brother and I were really unsettled. Uh, and, you know, one day my brother was at a, 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 a car wash and while his car was going through, you know, he saw a Guinness book of world's records sitting on the table and he called me up immediately on my cell and I don't know, it was like telepathy, but, but he said, I have a great idea to honor Scott's legacy. And we both at the same time said, set a Guinness, set a world record, set a Guinness world record, you know, and like, yeah, that's what I was going to say. You know, I'm looking at a book right now and I'm in the sports section and there's a couple of records in here. Uh, so we're like, okay, let's, let's pick the easiest one. And so it was, you know, hold uh, 23 balls in one hand. Uh, it was uh, most number of serves without a double fault, uh, 10,000, I think. And then it was, um, you know, hitting two balls at the same time. And that was like 2000. And, and so we're like, none of these are easy. So uh, forget easy. We said, let's pick the one that is the most real. And so we, we found the, uh, longest uh, tennis rally. And so we kind of made it our own. Uh, everyone else, based on our research, had started with a feed out of the hand. And so uh, we said, well, why don't we make it more real than that? We'll start with a serve and return, and then we'll just play the point out at the baseline rather than just some people came to the net and were very, very close and volleyed back and forth. And we didn't want to make it uh, kind of fake or not real. So we, we said, let, let's do that. And um, so, so that was in, uh, let's see, 2006, uh, let's see, 2006. Yeah. And then um, you have to, you know, file an application. You have to prove that you're a person in good standing in society. And there's all these, uh, you know, so luckily I passed that test, but uh, <laughs> then, uh, you know, it takes a few months, believe it or not, three to six months for them to actually um, get back to you. Um, and then, you know, they, you have to declare a certain date that you're going to uh, try to break the record. You can do it for charity. We knew that was our driving force. So uh, we were going to raise money for the ALS association, but we did include, um, uh, uh, other charities uh, like Rally for a Cure and um, uh, the Tim and Tom Gullickson uh, Foundation at the time um, and, and Save the Children, of course, where my brother still works full time. And so uh, we had a lot of motivators to set the record. Uh, I felt like we had a, a, a life balance going in. And in 2007 was our first attempt or actually our first two attempts um, we ran a, a full day charity event, uh, donating our time to raise money for, for the causes. And then uh, at about 4.30, we started the first rally. It lasted for about two hours. And unfortunately, um, one of us missed in the bottom of the net. 
and I and I'm not going to disclose that it was my brother. And uh, so then we, uh, <laughs> so then uh, uh, we we took a quick restroom break and then started again uh, at about six thirty. And um, you know, our, our we had a little. You have to kind of put little motivators in there. Uh, when you're doing something you've never done before. So the overarching uh, motivation was to honor our mentor's legacy and raise money for charity. So that was really what we needed from a macro. But from a micro, we said that if we get on the news, that would raise more awareness for the charities and therefore more money. So that was, uh, you know, one of our goals. So we said, okay, we got to make the the seven o'clock news. And then we got to make the 11 PM news, which we did. And then we got to make the 5 AM news, which we did. And then at 5.09 AM, unfortunately I fell asleep while hitting a forehand and I hit it into the uh, top of the net after a long blink. Um, And so we set the U S record as our consolation prize, 19,490 shots without a miss. Uh, but unfortunately, um, you know, we had failed, um, twice in one, uh, day. Um, and, uh, the record, by the way, from a detail standpoint with Guinness world records limited, you, as long as you start the record on the day that you declare. So we knew that that second attempt was our last attempt that we were allowed because we went till past 5. AM. So we knew that was the last one. And, um, I was encouraged when we finished. My brother was really discouraged. And I said to him, look at the bright side. We set the U.S. record. We raised money for charities and, and exposure, you know, and uh, we, we, we are really starting to honor Scott's legacy, but we're not there yet. So right away, we put the application in a, again for a year later. And um, I would say, as far as mental skills, we talk about how important mindset and mental skills are. And my take on that is this. You need a baseline foundation of skill set or technique to do something. It's not like, oh, you put your mind to uh, ice skating and you've never skated before. I think that would be tough to do. Um, you can read about it. You can imagine it. You know, usually I use imagination instead of visualization, but but that's another story. But in any event, you can visualize or imagine yourself doing it, but you do have to do it and, and acquire that skill. So there is skill acquisition, but then once you have a baseline foundation of skill, then it's all in your mind, uh, whether you can achieve something or, or not. And so um, with, with the rally record, it was not uh, a doubt of, if we were going to set the record, it was just when, um, and going into, um, the, the two, our first record, you know, so here we have uh, a wife and, and, and two children each. Um, and sometimes the wives are more demanding than the kids. And so, you know, we would sneak off and try to practice, you know, and they would call us on our cell, like, you know, what are you doing? We're, we're, we're just practicing for this world record. Like, you're doing what, you know, dinner's ready. And do you make any money with that? You know, uh, no, you have to pay out of your own pocket, the, the, the application fees and all of that. So um, for the very first, um, 
for the very first time, uh, the, the, the 2007 um, U.S. record, I believe we only practiced on the court once, uh, which I know sounds hard to believe. Um, it was at Hamden High School. Uh, that's where we played uh, high school tennis our, soft, our, our junior and senior years. And, um, we, and, and I remember, you know, we thought that it was going to be fairly easy. Um, and so we started a rally and we practiced for an hour and we missed, I think it was about five times, um, in that hour. And we said, this is extraordinarily difficult um this is this is but we said it's too late we already announced the date of the charity event and everything we can't we can't go back on it uh now uh so you know it was almost like um you know when you set a goal and then you have those low moments of disbelief or lack of confidence that you know, then you have to go remind yourself of why you're doing it. And um, we weren't going to be embarrassed if we missed because it wasn't about our own ego. There was no money to be made. Um, We were doing it to honor someone's legacy, someone that we cared about so, so much that wasn't on this earth anymore. And so once you um, put your motivation in the hands of, of something that is much more important and bigger than yourself, then fear goes away because fear is a protection mechanism for your own ego. And once you remove your own ego, uh, then, uh, you know, then you don't have to worry uh, about fear. And so uh, that was, uh, you know, so we knew we were going to try it again. Uh, We knew we were probably going to, uh, uh, practice more but but i will say this it's not just we went out there rogue oh these guys think they're that good that they could not practice and set a world record it it was not like that at all it was it was more that my mind was on the world record every waking hour and when i was sleeping for an entire year an entire year almost like a mental jail uh, for an entire year. So the physical practice was, was one hour of practice, but the mental practice was unlimited. I can't really put a timestamp on just me imagining what it would be like to arrive at the court, open the balls, have the umpire there, the adjudicator. I knew there was going to be people around, uh, you know, and, and one of the things I developed in, in especially going into the second world record on Federer's birthday of 2015 uh, was the Elvis principle. And, and what that was, was I said to my brother, look, uh, we have to plan for our distractions. We have to rehearse, visualize, imagine our distractions, not just it going well, but what if it doesn't go well, how are we going to respond? And so uh, you know, what I said is if Elvis walks in the room, if he walks and we see him walk in, we say, oh, there's Elvis. That's nice. Stay focused. 
and 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 that really worked and and uh, I really felt um especially going into the second world record but even the first that at a moment's notice if 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 the Guinness World Records folks said there's been an error and you have to start the record this minute right now I could still break the record that was my my ongoing mindset it wasn't building up to a crescendo that the purpose was so strong and the commitment was so strong that it was just whenever the date came, that, that was it. Uh, and to, you know, and to give perspective of what, you know, happens to a tennis ball, you know, when the fuzz wears off, there's a little bit of blue and a little bit of peach fuzz, like a peach, but it looks like a, a planet with, um, you know, the green uh, waters and the brown uh, earth. Uh, and actually, if you go to the uh, International Tennis Hall of Fame, there's a display with our original certificate and the uh, tennis balls and also the, the counters that we had crazy glued together so they can't move them anymore. But, but uh, the first record, um, you know, was... Uh, something that we did one and done. So, so in 2008, uh, we started, uh, you know, uh, in the morning uh, at 9.30 a.m. and we went all the way till a minute past midnight. We had arrived uh, prior to a 9 a.m. start. We were, we were predicting a 9 a.m. start. And, uh, but when we arrived, we had to talk to the, the fire marshal and the police chief about the charity event. And then uh, we also uh, had to um, uh, do all of our, our media interviews. Uh, there was an interview with Channel 8 and CNN, and those were unexpected. Uh, we didn't know uh, that that many people knew about it. Uh, but again, that was like the Elvis principle. It was, okay, no big deal. Um, do all the interviews. Uh, you guys, is that good? Yep. Okay. Now we'll start our record. So it was 30 minutes of uh, interviews and then at 9 30 AM we started um, and went from there. So that was the first record in 2008. And uh, uh, the, the, the record um, uh, was uh, 25,944 strokes um, taking 14 hours and uh, 31 win minutes uh, with no breaks, the same tennis ball, um, no balls bouncing twice. And, um, yeah, so that was a little bit about about the first record, and um, and, and it was uh, I think an extraordinary feat. I think I look back on it, and I think I'm more impressed now after the fact uh, than I was then. Uh, but then it was really just purpose driven, and uh, you know when we were rallying, I distinctly remember um, saying to my brother, you know. Uh, we didn't put a minimum price on the Roger Federer autographed uh, Nike headband. You know, we got to, we, we should have put a minimum price. We want to raise a lot of money for Scott, you know, in ALS. And, and then at one point I yell over the net as we're rallying, you know what, let's not worry about anything. Let's focus 100% on breaking the record because nothing else will matter if we don't break the record. And so we, that, you know, you constantly go through these thoughts and emotions and then you, back to being present as best as you can and I you know I'm a, a big fan of uh, Tim Galway's work in inner game of tennis I had re read the book a couple of times uh, in the past and so 
um, you know, I had my own version of, of uh, uh, the bounce hit. It was, um, you know, during the rally when it got tough, when we were at about 15,000 strokes, uh, because the year prior we didn't break 20,000. So, so the record was uh, uh, 24,696. We knew we had to break that. Uh, but we hadn't even gotten past 20. So at about 15,000 for every shot that I hit, I said to myself, um, under the ball, over the net, come on. Under the ball, over the net, come on. Um, so I said that, I don't know, 5,000 times, I guess, uh, <laughs> under my breath. Um, and the reason why, how I came up with that was I said, if I, if I get under the ball, it will go up. And over the net means you hit it with enough force that it clears the net. And then the come on was just the motivation because you really, at that point, really energy uh, deprived. And so that was for the extra motivation. And so that was my, my version, I guess, of, of bounce hit. Tim even asked me, did you, did you use bounce hit? You know, and I, I said, well, yeah, my own version of it. Yeah. I mean, I didn't say bounce hit or think bounce hit, but that's what I did think. Um, and then we had some interesting, uh, you know, possible mishaps. Uh, you know, we had the, the power bar panic, uh, at, at about 12,000 strokes where we had, you know, um, half power bars lined up on, uh, mini Gatorades. And so, uh, the first year in 2007, we had, you know, volunteers run us, uh, food and liquids, and what we found was the volunteers were more nervous than we were about messing us up. And so we, we, I sensed the nervous energy and we said that it would be better with that not happening. So we had camelbacks in 2008. We, we had a better plan. We started in the morning. We delegated the, the teaching clinics to other uh, professional uh, uh, teaching, tennis teaching pros so we can stay focused on the objective at hand. And then, uh, but the power bar panic, I was a little hungry. So uh, I said, eh, you know, I'm going to go get a power bar. Like we rehearsed. It took us about 10 lobs to, to eat a power bar. So uh, we went into the lob cycle, you know, and I was just about done with it. And I was then re-lowering the height to a rally ball height. And I overcompensated on the low end, the ball literally, bounced straight on the top of the let cord and luckily went over my brother alertly ran up and with, you know, continental grip blocked the ball back. Uh, I remember more to my backhand side, but I ran around my backhand because, you know, after hitting, uh, you know, 25,000 forehands, I didn't even know what a backhand was. So, so uh, uh, I wasn't going to hit a backhand. Uh, so the, 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 the kind of irony was that it was, uh, 25,941 um, uh, forehands, one serve, and one backhand. My, my brother did hit one backhand, uh, and the return of serve was with a forehand. But um, in any event, it was, it was kind of a, a cool thing. And, um, you know, as we were going through this, and I think people can appreciate this, but there are moments in your lifetime uh, where you feel equanimity where your spiritual self and your mind and your heart and your physical self is centered and right 
where it needs to be doing what you need to be doing. And during that rally, I had that sense, that sense. It's, it's a little bit difficult to describe, but that sense of being completely free, um, maybe like people who skydive for the first time that love that would experience something like that when you're weightlessness in the air or, or when you, uh, an astronaut when they when they first experience no gravity I, I don't know but but um you know that that feeling that you're doing the right thing for the right purpose and that you're you're honoring your your purpose and uh and and that's where the book came in tenacity later was just trying to um come up with lessons that i learned that i can help others so they can achieve uh their dreams and goals. And um, it's interesting because the second record, so the ball of the first record, all the fuzz wore off. The second record was more number of strokes. It was 30,576 volleys without a bounce. You would think that, you know, the friction would wear off that. But if you look at the ball, it just got darker. But, you know, the ball, it looks darker. But, um, the fuzz is still there. The fuzz is still there on the rally, the volley one. So it goes to show that the, the court is what wears out the ball, not the strings, uh, which is just interesting. Things that I really wouldn't have known if I, not that I was doing that to test that, but, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, and that one we did to honor also, you know, our favorite player, Roger Federer and, uh, and all of his accomplishments. And so he's such a class act. And we, so we, we uh, set the, the second world record on uh, 2015 on his uh, birthday. And again, uh, raised uh, money for save the children and, and several other charities. So, uh, and, and that record was, we put much more practice into that. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was, I think more grueling, and more challenging the second time around, you would probably think, well, you set one world record. How hard can the second one be? But, but, um, you know, we were, uh, older, uh, you know, uh, we both were, uh, seven years older. Uh, my cholesterol was high. It runs high in the family, uh, things that my wife reminded me of. And, um, you know, uh, and, and, you know, we, I was you know, full-time teaching pro, so more aches and pains. I had knee surgery on my uh, left knee, my meniscus. So I, I had a lot going on, you know, physically. But again, the records are, I would say, almost nothing to do with physical. Uh, it is emotional, manner, uh, 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 mental, your mindset, your purpose, uh, those things are more important physically. Yes. Uh, but, but not all physical. And so we prepared uh, more for the second record because we had more ailments and things. Uh, my, my brother had a wrist issue and things like that. Um, and, uh, and, and then uh, we had a mental skills coach as well. Larry Lauer, you know, of uh, USTA. Uh, you know, I had done the USTA high performance mental skills certification and so uh when we were planning the second world record for charity you know i i had asked larry hey um you know can you help us a little bit with being our mental skills coach and so we had some conversations some zooms 
And, um, you know, I think my, my biggest uh, uh, fear was about a week or two, maybe about a week out, uh, we were rehearsing on Friday night. So every Friday night I would keep the club open and we would, uh, you know, strain our bodies and minds uh, prior uh, to the practice. Uh, and so what we did was we would, um, you know, like, and I don't recommend this. I, I don't recommend this for anybody else. Uh, but we, you know, I wouldn't eat. I wouldn't drink the night before and I wouldn't go to bed so that I would be tired, thirsty and hungry. And then I would work the entire day. And then so would my brother. And then he would meet me at the club at about 6.30 p.m., 7. And we would do our volley rally from 7 to about 2 a.m. Uh, every Friday. Uh, and we did that for a month or two going into um, the, the August uh, 8th of uh, 2015. And uh, so it was much more rehearsal, much more planned for the second one than the first one. The first one, though, I will say, we did rally over a double net. Uh, we didn't do that the first year. So our, our preparation got better. The first year was one hour practice and your mind on it and your heart on it all the time. The, 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 the failed uh, attempt, the U.S. record. Then the, the first world record, it was a lot of practices, a handful of practices over a higher net. And then um, uh, we, we doubled the height of the net because we said that most tennis misses are in the net and that the two misses we had in 2007 were both in the net. Uh, and so we said if we took the net out of play as an obstacle, then we, we, we know we can do it. And, and when we got tired and fatigued, the ball, the average ball height would, would go down, not up. So um, that's why we practiced over a double net. That was for the, the world record. Then for the volley record, we came up with a song list. And that was our motivation. But also, um, once we finished the cycle of songs, we knew that we were rallying for an hour, about an hour. So when we started the cycle of songs again, uh, we, you know, we had uh, about 20 volunteers uh, counting the strokes uh, because according to the rules in this marathon tennis uh, rally, you have to have two volunteers at the same time, one counting his shots and one counting mine. And so they, we had a schedule. They would rotate out every hour because believe it or not, just clicking clicker is very taxing, uh, especially in the second world record of 2015 where the, the uh, ball is going back so quickly. We were very close to the net because uh, we were actually trying to raise a million dollars for Save the Children. Uh, we negotiated with a, um, a odds uh, company and they, and they had never done it before prior to us. They only uh, insured a golf hole in ones for charity events. Like if you hit a hole in one, you'd get a million dollars. Uh, so what we did was if you, we, if we, we asked them, if we set a world record on a certain day, you know, uh, we would love to then donate that million dollars to save the children. So they said to it, they, they said to us, well, since you already set a world record, um, we have to make the odds very difficult. So, so what they did was, yeah, we had one attempt on that day, you know, uh, doesn't matter if you're sick or not one attempt, um, 
And not only do we have to set the record, which we did, we, we broke our own record, but also uh, we had to have 5,000 shots uh, an hour or more. Um, that was the caveat. Well, up until probably about two weeks to the event, we had never rallied 5,000 or more shots an hour. We didn't even know how uh, to go at that rapid pace. That is a very rapid volley. But finally, we figured it out. You know, we got really close to the net. Uh, we, we did uh, forehand to forehand. Uh, you, you, know, um, it, you know, if you see a picture of it, you can see, um, you know, what that, that looks like. Um, but, but basically, we're, we're, we're in close proximity to each other. Of course, you can't touch the net. You can't reach over the net. Uh, but we were able in practice to sustain, uh, you know, uh, over 5,000 shots an hour. And if you divide up the numbers, 30,576 of volleys over the time span, which was five hours and 28 minutes, it is over 5,000. Um, uh, but, but, but basically, we, we had to reach the record of over 50,000 which was uh, then the, the uh, longest rally as far as number of shots. So we didn't get that record. So we didn't get the million dollars. We did set a new world record, which was the longest volley rally. And again, that was our consolation prize. Uh, but also we raised over $117,000 for Save the Children. So uh, that certainly uh, was rewarding and um you know, the interesting thing, uh, Josh and Brian, about that record was that um, I, I had a concern about using the restroom during the, the rally. Uh, so I, I purposely aired on uh, dehydration and starvation because I said that's taxing over time and maybe I won't notice. Uh, but if I make a mistake, then I'll definitely notice that. So so I, I was definitely dehydrated. Um, I ended up not using any of my liquids in my fanny pack because uh, the pace of the volley was so quick that just to, to bring it up from your shirt there, it was just, you can do it in practice, but when reality struck and you only have one attempt, it, that wasn't going to happen. Uh, and so, you know, no eating, no drinking, nothing. And so then when um, we were done, uh, I remember standing and there was a lot of kids from Hartford that had come down to um, be inspired by the attempt and the subsequent world record. And so we were signing autographs. And I remember we had an ambulance there just in case someone else, something would happen with someone else. I didn't think it was going to be me, but uh, I felt lightheaded. So they had me sit down and then they, you know, said, you know, why don't you come into the restroom? And they cut open my shirt. They took all the vitals and, um, you know, it was very dramatic, I guess. And so they gave me an IV on the spot and then they brought me to an oral hospital. I had another IV and, uh, and I had the best cheeseburger I, I've ever had. And I'm telling you, hospital food isn't stellar, nothing against hospitals, but, um, because I was so starved for food for like real food. Cause I was real. Also, I dropped my cholesterol. I, I wasn't drinking coffee at the time. I, I dropped, I think, 15, 20 pounds to get ready for this record. 
So as it was, I didn't have uh, a lot of extra body fat to throw around. Um, so I think that's another reason why I got dizzy and everything. Uh, but that was after the fact. So adrenaline was getting me through it. And my purpose was getting me through that. That was after uh, the rally had ended. We had set the, the second uh, world record. But but I guess, you know, my main thing is I used to think that dreams and goals had to be achievable. So all my life, I was going by, you know, you, smart goals and, and, and the A is achievable, you know. Uh, and then I don't believe that anymore. Um, goals and dreams, dreams should not be achievable. Um, and as Muhammad Ali once said, you know, uh, that nothing is impossible, impossible is an opinion. And, you know, I, I believe that achievable is, is someone's opinion. Uh, and so, you know, in setting both records, uh, you know, I, I, I came up with this thing of, you know, dreams should not be achievable. And if they are achievable, then that's not a dream. That dream is not big enough. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, I, I, uh, that, that's a little bit or a lot about both records. But uh, I'm certainly uh, hoping that these records um, live on to inspire others to do great things. Uh, and that's why I share this story, uh, you know, uh, and, I, and I'm hoping that also with the people that I uh, hit with and coach, you know, uh, a young uh, 11 year old girl and her dad said, Oh, we maybe should try to set a tennis world record of our own. And we even uh, helped friends of ours try to break our first record. We got that promotion company to put up a million dollars, you know, and we paid uh, our, the, the insurance premium to try to have them have a competition to break our record. Uh, but uh, unfortunately they, they didn't, but we, you know, we were, uh, in it for for the big picture and, and the right purpose. I mean, there's so many. It's a fantastic story. Right? So many sort of mental skill lessons there, Angelo. And um, part of it reminded me of like the you know Jim Lair talks about the training of your physical energy, your mental energy, your emotional energy, as well as you know the spiritual piece, which I think is a big piece of what you and your brother were doing. Right, they had that that purpose of what you guys wanted to achieve. So I thought, you know, those were definitely themes throughout your story um, that were really, really um, probably very facilitative of what you guys were able to achieve. So that, that was very cool. I thought also the use of imagery, you called it imagination. It's often called visualization, but yeah. you know, in a lot of sports psychology literature is referred to imagery. Imagination is probably really the same yes. thing, but um your purposeful look at everything that could happen just reminded me of what Novak Djokovic does. You know, when we talk about an elite athlete who uses visualization or imagery a lot, he's the kind of guy who looks at what could happen in a match and I want to be prepared for it. And I want to see myself handle it the, the way I want to and, and, and then move on from there. And, and, and he's talked about that at so many tournaments as being a, a key component to, to pulling him through in big matches. And obviously for your preparation, this was something that really helped you and your brother get through, especially that first attempt. You talked more about it in your, your first attempt than, than with the, the second in the volley. To volley yes. Right? Yes. Right? Yeah. But I think, you know, a lot of what you mentioned in your story 
kind of, it ties back to some of the things that you, you sent us a video about 10 things that you wish you had <laughs> known, 10 mental skills. You wish that somebody, a sports psychologist, some sort of mental coach had told you when you were much younger. And, you know, as you're telling that story, I can see some of these things in there. And you can tell me if I'm right. I'm going to choose a couple. Um, sure. What you put your heart – and this one I think I'm paraphrasing because I don't think I got this exactly verbatim the way you said it. But what you put your heart and mind to can be accomplished. I think that was number nine. Yeah. And and because a lot of people say uh, mind over matter or um, you know anything you can put your mind to, you can accomplish. And And that would be a realistic goal because a realistic goal resides in your mind. And, uh, but, uh, you know, a goal that you've never set before a record, you've never set before for a purpose that you you can't really make sense of is more coming from the heart. And so I think it has to be both. It, It can't be just your mind. Your mind is the mechanism or roadmap or your GPS of how you're going to do it. But your heart is why you're doing it. Why are you here? Uh, I know uh, in that movie, Warrior, I love that movie. And I remember, you know, in one of the, 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 uh, um, the semifinals, I think, when he was playing, he was going against an MMA fighter that was just unbeatable. And um, it was the final round. And so the coach really got his attention, looked him in the eye and said, if you don't knock him out, if you don't knock him out, you lose. And one of the things was he needed the money to save his house. So he says, you lose your house. You lose your family. Why are you here? Why are you here? He had him look him in the eye and tell him why he was there. And, and, that, and, that, and then he won. You know, and I know that was fiction, you know, but, but here, you know, it goes back to, Brian, what you just said is the why comes from the heart and the how comes from the mind. I uh, no, Angela. I, I loved hearing um, that entire story of uh, of bo- both of the both of the records and uh, the the attempts that that led up to the records. Um, one a question that I have um, involves sort of that planning process. Um, Brian uh, Brian asked or, or mentioned, and uh, you you touched on during um, during your retelling of of the event that you guys went through. Um, you know, different scenarios that might happen. Um, you played out different, um, you know, you, you played out, okay, if we need to um, take, a, you know, a break to, to drink something or to eat something, we go into the lob cycle. Okay, if, if we have a distraction, if Elvis walks into the room, this is what we're going to say to ourselves. This is some self-talk. Um, how, how did you guys lay that out? Was that something, um, you know, did you sit down and sort of write it all down in terms of these different scenarios? Was it, um, was it more of an ongoing discussion between the two of you? Um, was it, was it more just uh, telepathic, the, the, the identical twin connection? How did, uh, how did, or, or a combination? How, what, what was that process like? You know, uh, so Josh, uh, I would say it's a little bit of everything you just said. Uh, that's why my brother is my favorite doubles partner to play with because I, I, I 100% believe in him and he 100% believes in me. And so it's one thing to have self-belief, but to have the same belief in yourself in another person that is not you, 
Um, so I don't know if it was, it's not anything telepathic, but it just, this, this 100%, you know, belief that, and, and one of the, uh, our mottos was, I won't miss if you don't miss. And if you take that full circle, well, if he's not missing and I'm not missing, then nobody's missing. I know that there's, there's a more positive way to say that when I coach players, I, I, I don't have them say that. I say that clear the net, make the serve, not don't miss because don't isn't a visual. You can't imagine that, but the mind thinks in images. So it remembers the miss more than the don't. Uh, unless it's the Ghostbuster sign is the only visual I could really think of, of, of a don't, but really a don't is, is not a visual that we, we, you know, if you say, you know, think of a pink elephant, you'll think of that. But if you think of, okay, what's the image of don't, you know, it's hard to come up with something, but um, I, so I don't know why, but our pre- preparation was much more advanced and rigorous for the 2015 record on Roger Federer's birthday. Um, and I think it was, the realization after the fact that like, how did we set that record? Like, how did we do that? Um, and how do we teach ourselves to redo it? And then how can we use that information to teach other people to accomplish their dreams? You know, that is what motivates me today. Um, but I will say Josh, that it was pre-planning of, you know, getting Larry involved and he was great because then he got another uh, sports psychologist uh, that was really involved in marathon, the mindset for marathons. Uh, But in talking with both of them, it was very flattering and reassuring to know Larry and um, this, this woman who helped us was, it wasn't a lot. It was a, a few conversations, but it was more like you guys are spot on with what you're doing and, uh, you know, uh, keep doing what you're doing, you know, and then, of course, data, they would share us, send us some um, research reports on marathons and things like that, taxing the body and the mind. And, and, and also just Larry is so reassuring, so positive, so supportive. I had alluded to but didn't finish the story a week before in our last practice, my brother uh, severed a little a, a tendon in his wrist because we practiced so much with the volleys uh so so we thought we were done we thought we weren't even gonna yeah I thought we were done I thought we weren't even gonna make the attempt but then my brother said no there's no way I'm not gonna make the attempt so we went to the doctor and the doctor fitted a brace um you, you know if you see pictures of it you can see a brace on his wrist it didn't help the performance because you're not hitting the ball with the brace it just trying to, you know, deal with the injury. Uh, and so I emailed Larry, I never forget, I emailed in a panic and I don't, I'm not one to panic, but um, I, I emailed in a, in a panic and I said, you know, do you believe in mind over matter? Because my brother has an injury and, you know, the, the, the mind is going to have to take over. And so uh, he said, yes, uh, more or less. He said, yes. I said, okay, that's all I need to hear. It's possible, you know, and, uh, you know, but again, that goes to the heart and mind thing. Logically, you know, my brother had no business volleying for, you know, 30,576 shots. He had no business doing that. Um, uh, but, you know, when your heart is there, it just goes beyond the pain and discomfort and the fear 
of further injury or missing or embarrassment or any of those, you know, like embarrassment is such a minuscule thing when your purpose is so big. But um, then more specifically, Josh, yes, we did have a plan. So we had our playlist. We timed, uh, we, we chose songs from new and old that we loved that inspired us, some sad, some happy. Uh, we had pictures of our family in our pockets. Uh, we, uh, uh, every time on Friday night when we finished the rally at around 2 a.m., we'd go to a local diner, get coffee, debrief the practice, write down our reflections, what we were going to do better the next practice. Um, you know, uh, if we had to use the restroom, what would that look like? And, and if we ran out of water, what would that be like? And if we had to volley with two hands, uh, what would that be like? Uh, matter of fact, I was fully ready and prepared. I had rehearsed that halfway through, I was going to go to a two-handed volley to support my right arm. But again, when game day goes on and you're volleying at such a rapid pace and you're in the flow, I, I made the executive decision not to put the second hand on there. Uh, I didn't risk it. I didn't risk sipping water from my fanny pack, even though we had rehearsed that. Uh, so uh, it, rehearsal, uh, physical and mental, was critical to the success of the second record. Uh, and a very funny story was, so at about 2 a.m., we finished our debrief. I'm driving home with my Volvo on, uh, on, on 95. And um, then a, a police officer pulls me over. It was about 2 a.m. So I have cameras in the car. I have ball hoppers, rackets, raffle items, um, you know, and prep for the, the, the charity event. And so he said, he looked in the windows, you know, and he's like, where, where are you coming from? I'm like, Western Racket Club. He's like, and what were you doing? I'm like, you're not going to want to know, or you probably won't believe it. He goes, try me on for size. And I said, well, we're trying to set a Guinness world record, you know, for the longest tennis volley rally to, to, to honor our, our, our mentor, honor his legacy, raise money for charity. And he's like, Oh, okay. Like it was no big deal. And then he goes, do you know why I pulled you over? And I said, um, was it because I was swerving a little? Now I was exhausted. I was exhausted. And even though I just had a cup of coffee, I, I was, I was bobbing. My head was bobbing. It was very unsafe. I don't recommend it. Uh, and he said, no. Um, he said, the light bulb above your license plate is burnt out. I didn't even know there was a light bulb above my license plate. So, so if you, if listeners and viewers of this, learn nothing else make sure that in the state of connecticut that your light bulb above your license plate is is working so i paid the 117 dollar fine gladly just to know uh that i could get home and go to bed but uh th that was a really hilarious story but 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 josh uh, to your point we really planned out as much as we possibly could we live streamed the whole event so I know Yvonne Lendl was watching and prepared to, you know, come over to the club. Friends of ours that couldn't make it were watching. Family that were 
in the U.S. and, and abroad. Uh, so we really wanted to make it for them, not about us again. And uh, so rehearsing, you know, all of that, one of the things that we rehearsed because we did it indoors because you can't plan for lightning and rain and all of that. And so, um, you know, we did it indoors purposely both times. Uh, it, 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 God forbid it was a thunderstorm and a power outage. We did re rehearse, um, you know, having large flashlights there and that um, we had the back garage door open uh, where when you, it was a hard to court, when you put the hard to down, you got to bring in the roller. So we had that open. So we knew that based on the time of when we were doing the record, we have enough natural light that we could, we could get away with a few volleys um, until the, you know, the electricity came back on. But that became such a cumbersome plan that we, we did bail on that one. We said, you know what? We cannot control if um, the electricity goes out. So um, we, we are going to, uh, you know, have to go without preparing for that. It was just too much preparing. I mean, yes, we did have the doors open for some natural light. But um, but yeah, uh, it, it, that that was uh, uh, some of our planning. Well, plus it was in August too, August. Angelo. Yeah, it was it was very hot. It was very hot, both times because both events were in August. Ninth and the tenth was uh, the first one. It went over two days, and this one was only one day. The U.S. record was over two days too. So, <laughs> uh, but it's kind of funny because you know the first year if you think about it, we had two. Uh, failed attempts and um uh and then we we had two more attempts and we were two for two so uh so over, overall we're two for four on world record attempts <laughs> not bad not bad at all so <laughs> um i mean there's just your story and then you know the preparation that went into it it all just speaks to like how much mental fortitude that you and your brother were able to, to bring forth with this amazing purpose, really driving everything. Um, how do you then communicate some of these lessons that you learned very experientially, you know, through your career, but through these, through these, uh, these two amazing world records, how do you communicate that to your students? You know, how do you work with them so that, you know, at some point in their lives, like you said, they can realize their dreams and do great things. Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I, the, the first was um, writing the book Tenacity, the Tenacious Mindset on and off the court and then online course. And it was my way of trying to crystallize what we did after the fact some of it was beforehand, but a lot of it was reflections after the fact, kind of like I've heard people say, and I completely believe um, that, you know, um, like Bill Scanlon, the late Bill Scanlon, unfortunately just passed away recently, but he came up with Zen Tennis. And, you know, in there, he said, after the fact, he reflected on how he got in the zone, but he wasn't thinking about being in the zone. He wasn't preoccupied or worried about being in the zone. He wasn't second guessing it when he was in the zone it's the same type of thing as both of these world records it was more after the fact kind of uncovering 
what we did, how we felt, you know, emotional, spiritually, physically, and mentally. And then, then how can you break that down and then rebuild it and then teach someone to do it? And so that's, uh, came the three, two, one method. And, you know, um, you know, my original uh, inspiration was uh, the inner game of tennis uh, from uh, Tim Galway and then Sean Brawley, for sure. Uh, great guy. And and so so um, Tim mentored Sean, who then mentored me. And then every Monday we would hit for an hour or so and just talk. And, you know, uh, and then, um, you know, the three, two, one method, he kind of said, you know, why don't you come up with something and make it your own? Uh, so I came up with the three, two, one method, and it was a way to take, let's say, these um, abstract mindset thoughts, uh, plans, strategies, and crystallize them into something that's tangible. Because still, the mindset and mental skills are very intangible. You hear Djokovic, after winning the French in the post-match press conference, kind of talk about his he's had uh, you know much more mental preparation the two voices he said there's always a voice that is for you and against you let's say the devil and the angel uh the naysayer and you know and and that you know and going with tim galway inner game and and the the the, the you know um uh the voices there and your 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 uh uh self one and self two it's the critic and the doer you know, and you don't want to be the critic while you're doing something like this because you can't afford a miss. Um, and so the three, two, one method, you know, after spending some time with Sean is, you know, I, I said, well, tennis is, you know, it's not like golf. If it was golf, it would be as easy as one, two, three. But I said tennis is easy as three, two, one, three, two, one method, you know. So I, I developed these scorecards, these spreadsheets, so people could then, you know, document uh, their controllables like, spin, uh, you know, balance, uh, height over the net, um, the shape of the ball, rising, placement, things like that. Uh, all are key parts of, of the sport of tennis. And so, um, you know, that is uh, 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 how I came up with, with the three, two, one method. And then uh, I, since I came up with it a few years ago, I use it every day in every lesson I ever teach, whether the person wants technique, whether they want to just hit, whether they you know, want to work on their anxiety, whatever it is, I, I use three, one to, to apply to what they're looking to accomplish. And so uh, for, for me there, um, you know, it, it, it was something that made, mindset and mental skills easier to do kind of pulling it from the inside out based on three key things of awareness you know kinesthetic awareness uh, uh uh auditory awareness you know what things sound like and then visual awareness third being the most difficult um, but really going by by what things you know how things uh feel yeah well i'm glad uh... I, I I didn't know uh, your connection, or, or you know, prior to our conversation, didn't know as much about your connection with uh, with John. I knew I knew about your your inspiration from um, Tim Galloway, but I I uh, was mentored by him as well, and we we had him on in a, a recent 
um, fairly recent episode of of uh, of the podcast. So uh, that's that's uh, very special to hear about. And uh, no, I, I think that's um, something I, I think about with within my own coaching on a on a daily basis in terms of you know taking taking what 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 you've learned in terms of you know learning from different mentors and learning from your experiences, but really making it your own, making it your own. Um, methodology your own um yeah yeah figuring out what works best for you um and then bringing it you know bringing it with you um with with each individual or each group that that um you're with so that's that's uh definitely really really inspiring and and uh it, it seems that i mean maybe uh correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like through through some of your experiences including these guinness book of world record um journey journeys and uh successes um that these these helped you um these understandings um came about at least in part through through those experiences and help you you know on a a day-to-day basis with um the students that you work with yeah you know and 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 what i would say there is you know, I, I always go back um, to the records and 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 think about. I, I it made me think about life and the world differently um, because the records weren't tennis; they were, but they weren't. And so then I try to um, apply that when I'm working with someone because I realize it is. Zero percent about me and 100 percent about that person. But where I come in is I use the records when appropriate as additional inspiration to tell them, yes, you can do something that you thought was impossible. I'm living proof of that. That's where my piece comes in. Um, but, you know, this pandemic has been really challenging mentally, you know, with Naomi Osaka, her depression after uh, the U.S. Open and, and coming out with with that and pulling out of the French Open. It happens to all of us. And so there was a, a student I was working with and he was very good grades in high school. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, he. Uh, you know, had a tough time mentally and, um, you know, had to go to the hospital for a couple of weeks. And so you know, when he came back, you know, I said, look, you know, um, I talked to his parents. I said, I don't think you should be doing clinics anymore. I think uh, players like that would compare themselves to how they're doing with others. And I, I don't think he needs to have any perfectionism going on or comparisons or anything like that. So this player I thought was better suited for private lessons with me rather than clinics. Um, a lot of people in clinics, they compare themselves to others and that could be detrimental to their mindset. Uh, so I said, look, you know, uh, I take this as a challenge. This is this is uh, why I'm here, um, you know, uh, to, to make this person feel better about himself and to get out of, you know, these demons that he might have because of COVID, you know, directly because of COVID and the isolation. So, um, you know, so we went into doing uh, one private a week and and my, my mindset going in was I was an open book. I was going to ask him the very first lesson. Look, you know, um, whatever you want, what, what would you like to do? We keep score. We don't keep score. We talk, we hit, whatever. So it, the first one was more just talking and hitting. But then after that, you know, he got his mojo back and was 
you know, hey, tell me what I'm doing wrong with my backhand grip. And it got very, and then it got right into regular tennis lessons. Then it became two tennis lessons a week. And, uh, you know, the amazing thing was then we had, uh, you know, uh, um, a junior team tennis match and he ended up being the MVP and going undefeated. And uh, so I remember, um, you know, my wife saying to me that made his weekend. And I said, that didn't make his weekend. That, that made his life. And, uh, you know, that's, I, I think the type of coach I am, you know, I, 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 I really, uh, you know, uh, listen uh, and care. I think I, I try to care more about the person uh, than the progress. And if I care more about the person, then you will have progress. And, uh, and then with a three, two, one method, it kind of like puts everything together. Uh, but I think I have, you know, some weight behind it because I have these world records and I've, you know, took them apart and put them together. So I kind of put all that in there. Uh, but, but I, but I will say that uh, I was not being self-critical with either record, the Elvis principle uh, was really important. And, and the funny thing there um, was when we had that playlist for the volley record, for some reason, when my brother uploaded it the morning of, the whole playlist got corrupted or something. So, or, so that the, a lot of the songs like Eye of the Tiger, I was missing that song. It was not in there. And that was, you know, at that moment, that was going to be toward the end of the hour. That was going to give me the energy to go into the next hour. And so the playlist was wrong. It was, it was either the wrong playlist or a bunch of songs got corrupted. So that threw off the timing of everything. Uh, and it didn't matter. It didn't matter. In other words, what, 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 what I try to s tell students of mine is, is nothing matters. It was a player, you know, going into the state open, you know, uh, coach, what am I going to do today? I, I, I don't feel like I have energy. I wrote back, you don't need energy to win. <laughs> you know, in other words, whatever it is, I, you know, you, you, you don't, um, you don't dwell on the things that hold you back. You, uh, you are aware. You don't block them out because that takes energy. It's kind of like um, those scary movies when you're a kid and you're like, you're, you know, you don't want to look at the screen, but then you can't help but peek through, right? You know, but you're using all this energy to, to hold back, to not look at the scary image. Whereas if you notice the scary image, you accept it. And then you move on from it. And that's the thing with our mistakes and failures is, you know, you're aware of your mistake. You accept the mistake. How can you improve going forward? And you go from there. But I will say with both records, the fact that it's one and done, one attempt. And if you miss, you know, you don't go down in history. Uh, that one you know, you have to do on the job training, you have to do on the job learning. And so that's where the three, two, one method comes in. So I'll, I'll give you an example, uh, Josh and Brian is if I um, um, was aiming too low on my rally ball on a ground stroke, I would know it was too low when I missed it in the net. 
And then I would take the learning from the mistake into the next point. Well, with the two world records, we didn't have that luxury. So with the three, two, one method, what I say is three feet over the net, you, you call out the number three and two feet over the net, you call out the number two. And if it's one foot over the net, you call out the number one. And of course, in competition, you think this or you're at least aware of it. And so then when your threes are turning into twos, the three is a green light, the two would be a yellow light, but then the one would be high alert red light, but the rally is still going. The point is still going. You haven't lost the point yet. Your trigger that you're becoming too risky based on neck clearance is based on the three, two, one method. And so therefore, you know, yeah, I've developed a way that you can coach yourself real time during a match because even coaches can't coach their players during the points. And so you can coach yourself based on awareness. And so you're aware of how, like, so for example, if it, we're talking about placement, three feet inside the line is a three, two feet inside the line is a two, one foot inside the line is a one. Wait, red light, red light. I'm aiming too close to the line. Let me aim more into the court, you know? And so, um, you know, th that's why, uh, you know, I, I find that it, it's, um, you know, very objective and not subjective and it removes judgment. And so what I say is, you know, if someone rolls their eyes, oh, that was a one. No, 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 no. It's like you're a chair umpire and you're making the line call. The umpire is not going to give attitude or anything like that. They're not going to judge you. It's in or it's out. You know, it's a letter. It's not. And so therefore, three, two, one method, it's, you know, uh, when, when you're rallying, it's, you know, you're reporting the fact that your neck clearance was a one. And now on your next shot, you're going to try to raise that to a two or a three. And it's more matter of fact. And so you take the, the emotion and judgment out of risk, but you keep the awareness in and i'm all about you know how to manage your risk reward ratio uh, uh based on that method yeah yeah so angelo just uh amazing stories you're such an inspirational coach i love the way that you coach your players with you know one of your tips was awareness acceptance accelerates learning that's a great example of it and also the way you work with that player and um you know, I know the people who are listening to this podcast today are um, going to be tremendously inspired by what you've told us. You know, I want to thank you for, for coming on the podcast today. And um, hopefully we can have you back to talk a little bit more about some other uh, aspects of your coaching and mental training. Um, I know you get a lot, of, a lot more stories for us, but uh, thanks again for being here today. Yeah, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate your time. Uh, certainly fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Angelo. Uh, I think, you know, our, our listeners and viewers will definitely get a lot out of that, um, out of your, your stories and experiences. And also definitely want to highlight all of the uh, tremendous, um, you know, tremendous benefit that, that you and your brother did uh, for charity in, in both of those events. I think that's, you know, really inspiring and, you know, just a, a great reminder to all athletes and coaches out there of um, the importance of having a mission and that purpose behind you.
whatever it may be, maybe it's for some sort of a greater good or um, as, as you mentioned, some purpose bigger than bigger than yourself, I think um, being able to find that motivation and find that purpose for why, what you're, for why you're doing what you're doing um, makes, makes a, a dream um, possible. So uh, thank you for, for sharing that. That was incredibly inspiring. Thank you, Angela. Yeah, thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Well, that was an awesome conversation, Brian. Um, I would say one of, the, one of my biggest takeaways um, was about the preparation piece. And this is something that we discussed in our last episode, our most recent episode before this, um, episode 45. Um, and this was definitely a, a big theme of the conversation. Um, where Angelo was talking about how he and his brother really went through a preparation process and really thought about different contingencies, different um, scenarios that might play out during uh, their record-breaking attempts. Um, uh, What happens if Elvis walks into the room? What happens if we need to eat something or drink something? Um, What happens if, you know, anything? Maybe the ball hits off the let cord. Uh, maybe somebody hits the ball to your backhand side where you're trying to hit forehands. Um, but, but it really, to, to me, it really emphasized the importance um, for all athletes and all performers of planning ahead, of thinking through what could happen and how you want to respond to these types of situations so that you don't end up reacting. Um, so that, that was one of my biggest takeaways uh, from the conversation. How about, how about you, Brian? Well, I, you know, of the themes that I identified, that was definitely one of them, and it was impressive. It was interesting to see how they sort of evolved it from the first time they tried, you know, which was not necessarily winging it, but not a ton, to like this ultra preparation piece where they were rehearsing everything. So I thought that was cool. I thought the other big takeaway, and I said it at the in the intro about um, the overarching theme of this whole thing, which was, you know, purpose and heart, right? Doing something out of that. Um, and in the show notes, we're going to put in a, a link to Angelo's video on the top 10 mental skills that he wished he had learned when he was younger. Uh, and number nine was related to this. And it was something uh, along the lines of what you put your heart and mind to can be accomplished. And a lot of the inspiration or the inspiration for um, Angelo and his brother setting those records was to honor their friend and their mentor who had passed away. And it just gave them that that much more purpose to do something. And it just speaks to that motivational or, you know, sometimes we refer to it as the spiritual side of our training, which isn't necessarily a religious thing, but it's really more when we're doing something for a reason bigger than ourselves. And and I think that Angelo and his brother, you know, got a lot of power and inspiration out of that. And they also then did this for charity. So there was a lot of stuff, a lot of reasons for them to do this and, 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 and think of all the work they went through, Josh. You know, the number of hours, not only in practicing and rehearsing, but then just the actual time to do the record was, is amazing. And I, don't, I can't even imagine how my arm would feel if I tried either one of those um, records. So uh, just really impressive. And, and, you know, Angelo is just an impressive dude on his own. And I think he just lives that way, right? He seems to live for a bigger purpose for serving his students, serving his community. And I think um, those stories that he told about the the records really is just a a tremendous testament to that and and who he is as as a human being. So um, 
So Josh and I, we want to thank uh, Angelo Rossetti again for coming on to the Tennis IQ podcast today. Uh, for more on today's show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions for us, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag TennisIQ. Additionally, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, including YouTube, so you can be notified for new episodes. You can also check out our Instagram account for other notifications. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you soon in our next episode.